Hi, and welcome to the Magical History Tour. Today, we're picking up with the French and the English explorations. So let's jump right in. One of the first official voyages of exploration in the North Atlantic was that of Giovanni Caboto, or John Cabot, who reached Labrador in 1497. He was sailing for the English, but when he returned, the English did very little to follow up on his visit. In 1524, Giovanni de Verzano, sorry about the pronunciations, explored the North American coast from Cape Fear, North Carolina to Maine for the French. Now because of this, the French king commissioned Jacques Cartier to locate a Northwest Passage to the Indies. Now a Northwest Passage was something that people thought would be a passage that would go through the Americas and cut through them so that they could get to the Indies more quickly. Now, there is no Northwest Passage, but that didn't stop them from looking for it for a really long time. Cartier made three voyages. He did not locate a Northwest Passage, obviously, but he did explore the St. Lawrence River, and that led him to the Great Lakes, which had easy access to the Ohio and the Mississippi Rivers. Those explorations will give the French an incomparable geographic edge over other colonial powers. They really got to know the, old, the middle part of what will be the United States really well. Cartier did attempt to plant colonies on the St. Lawrence. They failed, but he did establish France's imperial claim to the land of Canada. Now, during these voyages, the French obviously discovered the native populations in the northern woodlands, and their contact with the natives here was very different from that of the Spanish in the tropics. It was based on commerce rather than conquest. The native tribes immediately recognized the importance of textiles, glass, copper, and ironware that the French were offering them. At the same time, Cartier was very interested in the fur coats of the native tribes. Europeans used furs for winter clothing, but the growing population in Europe in the late Middle Ages had really depleted the wild game, so the price of furs had risen beyond what regular people could pay. The North American fur trade is going to fill an important demand and it's going to produce really high profits. Beginning in the 16th century, the fur trade would prove to play an important role in the Atlantic economy for three centuries. Now, the native tribes were by no means the victims of European traders. They were very shrewd, they had an eye for quality, and the competition among the traders will enable the natives to hold out for what they considered to be really good prices. However, at the same time, furs sold in Europe for like 20 times what the native tribes will receive for them. So it is essentially an uneven exchange. Like the conquest too, the fur trade will also bring epidemic disease to the native tribes in the northern woodlands. Violent warfare will break out between tribes over access to hunting grounds. And finally, as the natives grew used to European manufactured goods such as metal knives, kettles, and especially firearms, they're going to become dependent on European suppliers. Now by 1600, over a thousand European ships were trading for furs each year along the northern coast. The first French colonies, however, are going to be planted farther south by a group of religious dissenters known as the Huguenots. Now I'll talk about the Huguenots in a minute, but I need to talk a little bit about the Protestant Reformation first. In 1517, the Protestant Reformation, which is the religious revolt against the Roman Catholic Church, began when a German priest named Martin Luther publicized his differences with Rome. 
He will post his 95 theses, which are a list of his grievances, basically, towards the Catholic Church on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. These differences with Rome will cause quite a sensation. He declared that eternal salvation was a gift from God, and it was not related to works or service. His protests, what we'll call Protestantism, will fit into a climate of widespread dissatisfaction with the power and prosperity of the Catholic Church. He'll attract followers all over Northwestern Europe, including in France, where his followers were persecuted by Catholic authorities. John Calvin, a Frenchman who had converted to Luther's teachings in 1533, fled to Switzerland and he develops a radical theology called predestination. Predestination was the idea that God had chosen a small number of men and women for election or salvation, while condemning the vast majority to eternal damnation. Calvinists were supposed to live a good, virtuous life, which would be a sign of their election. Now, the Huguenots are Calvin's followers in France, and they were primarily merchants and middle class, but they also included a handful of the nobility, which opposed the authority of a Catholic monarch because they're Protestant. So in 1560, a group of Huguenot nobles will attempt to seize power in France, but they're defeated. That will begin a 40-year religious struggle and a widespread persecution of the Huguenots. So Huguenot leaders are behind the first French attempts to establish colonies in North America, mainly in an effort to establish a religious refuge in the New World. So in 1562, Jean Rabot and 150 Protestants from Normandy will land on Paris Island near what is present-day Beaufort, South Carolina. They begin constructing a fort, some crude huts in which to live, and Rabot will go back for supplies. Now here, <laughs> I always tell my classes, if you don't learn anything in this part of history, what you want to learn is never leave your colony because that's going to be a bad thing for everyone. Rabot will go back to Europe for supplies. He ends up getting caught up in the religious wars back home and he's not able to get back. The colonists are waiting for him. They nearly starved. They ended up having to resort to cannibalism before being rescued by a passing British ship. Rabot, who obviously didn't have to go through all that, will try again in 1564, establishing another Huguenot colony called Fort Caroline on the St. John's River of Florida, south of today's Jacksonville. Unfortunately, the Spanish didn't want anyone in Florida because their shipping routes ran right along Florida and they were bringing back all that Aztec and Incan gold and they didn't want anyone to be able to jump out and attack their ships. So as soon as they found out that the French had settled in Florida, they will quickly go in and crush the Huguenots and they'll set up their own settlement that would be St. Augustine. Now, in the early 1600s, France devised a way to monopolize the northern fur trade. Samuel de Champlain, the father of New France, is what he's known as, eventually founded the settlement of Quebec in 1608, where he could intercept the traffic in furs to the Atlantic. He will ally with the Huron Native American tribes. Those Native American tribes controlled access to the Great Lakes areas. Great Lakes area was prime hunting ground. So he will join them in war on their enemies, who were the Iroquois, and he will send agents and traders to live with the native tribes and learn the language and learn the customs and also to direct the flow of furs to Quebec. 
Now the St. Lawrence River gave France a really great advantage. It was problematic though. It froze in the winter, which isolated the colonists. Also, it was a very short growing season in that area because it was so cold. So the area is really limited in crop productivity and France does something that they probably shouldn't have done. They made New France, as they were gonna call it, strictly Catholic. They could have settled persecuted Huguenots there very quickly, but they didn't allow them. So only Catholics could come. Well, Catholics weren't being persecuted in France and not that many of them really wanted to traipse off to a new world and freeze. So, so there's very slow population growth in New France. Like Spain though, France will develop a society of inclusion. Still, it's gonna be very different from Spain. The Spanish tended to conquer the native tribes and exploit them as a labor force. The French don't have the manpower to do that. Instead, they attempted to build an empire through alliances with native nations. Jesuit missionaries in New France will also attempt to learn native languages, as I mentioned, and understand their culture in an effort to introduce Christianity as a part of the natives' existing way of life. The Spanish Franciscans insisted that the natives accept European cultural norms, and if they became Christian, they could no longer involve themselves with their old religions. Now, in 1663, Louis XIV made New France into a royal colony led by a governor general. New France was fully subject to the French king. Colonists had no political rights. They had no representative government. Louis XIV actually tried to encourage settlement, though. He limited indentured servant terms. He gave really generous land grants. Still didn't work. Nobody wanted to go. Then he tried forcing people to go. He would take, like, impoverished villages in France or people who got into trouble with tax collectors. He took orphans, prostitutes, anybody who, you know, was considered problematic. They were rounded up and sent there. He sent boatloads of young women, they were called the king's daughters, to marry the mostly men that lived there. Still didn't work. In 1665, there were about 4,000 people in New France, and it's only going to grow to about 15,000 by 1690. By 1750, the British colonies that we haven't talked about yet will number 1.5 million. New France is still at about 70,000. In New France, the church and state are closely interwoven. France will construct a second Catholic empire in North America, and Jesuit priests will carry Catholicism deeper into the continent. The French will also use their trade network and their alliances with the natives to establish a huge crescent of colonies that will extend from the mouth of the St. Lawrence all the way down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. The top end of the crescent was anchored in the northeast with the fortress of Louisbourg. That was the most important French port in the North Atlantic. In the south, the colony of Louisiana will form the other end of the crescent. They planned this to eventually be a great continental empire that would limit the British to a narrow strip of Atlantic coastline. Farming communities, such as those in the Illinois country that shipped wheat to the sugar plantations in Louisiana, become the most profitable French enterprise in North America. Now, because they had good relationships with the natives, the French will become very impressive explorers, and they chart the central third of the United States. The Reformation is also going to affect England. Henry VIII of England will at first support the Catholic Church, and he opposed the Protestants. However, the public resented the fact that the Catholic Church owned vast properties that brought great revenues to Rome. Henry was not having any male heirs with his current wife, Catherine of Aragon. She's the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain by the way. 
And so he asks for an annulment from the Pope so he can marry someone else. The Pope refused to annul the marriage, so that's when Henry VIII decided to take up the cause of reform, which was growing popular. In 1534, he will declare himself the head of a separate Church of England. He takes over English estates of the Catholic Church, which was about a quarter of England's land, and he'll use the revenues to begin building a standing army and a navy, among other things. He also conveniently gave himself a divorce. He succeeded by his young son, Edward VI, who was very sickly and died shortly after his succession. Edward's half-sister, Mary, was next on the throne. The daughter of Catherine of Aragon, she's the only child she had that lived, she attempted to reverse her father's reformation from the top by martyring hundreds of English Protestants, and she gained the title Bloody Mary for the many deaths she ordered. After her death in 1558, Elizabeth, her half-sister, will ascend the throne. Elizabeth I sought to end the religious turmoil by being fairly tolerant of views within the English church. This will make the Spanish monarch angry, however, and he declares himself the defender of the Catholic faith, and he vowed to overthrow her. Now, Elizabeth's advisors finally decide it's time to enter the competition for American colonies. Though Elizabeth at first doesn't commit the state to the plan, she does authorize several private ventures. The first attempt was made by Sir Humphrey Gilbert in 1583. Unfortunately, he landed not in the Rhode Island area where he had intended, but in Canada. With winter approaching, they decided to head home. His ship vanished and was never found. Now, his half-brother, Sir Walter, Raleigh decided to establish a colony southward on the outer banks of North Carolina on Roanoke Island. In 1587, he and about a hundred colonists led by Governor John White will settle on the island. Governor White stayed about a month before returning to England for supplies. Remember, I said, never leave your colony. He left behind his daughter, Eleanor, and her daughter, Virginia Dare, the first English child who was born in the New World. His return was delayed, and when he finally made it back in 1590, the colony had been abandoned. They were never found. Now, they have recently found several items that they think came from the colonists of Roanoke, and they think that they've kind of figured out maybe what happened. So it's kind of interesting the last couple of years getting some articles about that. I'll see if I can post some. Now, King Philip of Spain was outraged at the English attempts to invade territory that was reserved by the Pope for Catholics. Remember Intercatera, where he said, this half of the globe belongs to Spain? Yeah, well, Spain didn't like this, so they'll send a fleet of 130 ships in 1588 to attack the British Isles. Unfortunately, an ill-timed storm, along with the smaller and more maneuverable ships of the English, caused the Spanish to fail, and their monopoly of the New World will be over. Still, by the end of the 16th century, neither the French nor the British had succeeded in establishing any lasting colonial communities. Now, we talked about how impressive the Spanish colonial empire was. Eventually, however, we are going to see it go into decline. And there are several reasons why this starts to happen. Number one, the Southwest region that they were now getting into exploring didn't really have the gold and silver or the large native populations that were wealthy that had been in Mexico and in Peru. The Spanish were also distracted by a lot of unrest in Mexico. So they couldn't really concentrate as much on developing the Southwest area. They're so preoccupied with other things 
that they really do neglect the factors that are necessary for producing viable settlements with self-sustaining economies, like a thriving market economy. Instead, they concentrate on building missions and forts and looking for gold. They emphasize conversion to Catholicism, they forbade manufacturing within the colonies, and they strictly limited trade with the natives. This does not for a good thriving colony make. So now we have the Spanish, the French, and now the English all beginning to make settlements in the New World. On the next episode of the Magical History Tour, we'll be talking about English colonization. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like it, recommend it to a friend.